All right, hello everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the first ever episode of Flux International Relations Review Podcast. Uh, my name is Graydon Davidson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief. And today I have the great privilege of being joined by Mr. Robert Fowler. So just a quick introduction. During his 38 years of public service, Bob has served in a multitude of diplomatic roles, including as foreign policy advisor to Canadian Prime Ministers Pierre Trudeau, Don Turner, and Brian Mulroney. Uh, in 1995, he was appointed as Canadian Ambassador to the United Nations. In 2008, while serving as UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon's Special Envoy to Niger, Bob was captured by Al-Qaeda and held hostage in the Deep Sahara Desert for nearly five months. Uh, in 2011, he was appointed an officer of the Order of Canada. Bob, thank you so much for coming on. Real pleasure, Greg. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the history and future of the non-aligned movement uh, based on an article which will be published by Flux in January by an undergraduate named Wilson Simons, who discusses how the non-alignment movement was used uh, in the anti-colonial struggle. So let's get into it. As I was reading your biography, Bob, I saw that as an undergraduate, you started at McGill and then transferred to Queens. As a McGill student, I have to ask, what made you go over to the dark side? Ah. Well, uh, I was a pretty crummy student, uh, and uh, I didn't like being a student much. All my life, I wanted to be 30, and I still do. I was going to big lectures of three or 400 people in uh, classrooms watching tiny black and white televisions and hated every minute of it. I don't think that was McGill's fault. That was more my fault. I left and I went to Rwanda to teach. Uh, and I taught at the Université Nationale de Rwanda for a year uh, when I was 19, 20. And as usual in such cases, I learned more than I taught, but it was a wonderful experience. And when I came back, I decided, uh, opted for a change, and Queens was that change. Uh, just for those who are unfamiliar, how would you explain uh, the non-aligned movement? I guess I'd start by saying it was inevitable. By that, I mean uh, there were 51 countries who signed the UN Charter in 1946. Almost all of them were rich, uh, relatively, and most of them were former colonial powers. And Africa was represented by two or three or four, I think, countries. Uh, India was there, um, uh, Brazil was there, but most uh, of the developing world was not. China was represented, of course, by Taiwan. Um, and it was, in other words, an extremely uh, unrepresentative group, as indeed um, had the League of Nations been before it. Uh, basically uh, run and controlled by the victors in the Second World War. Uh, Germany and Japan were not allowed to be members for uh, nearly a decade later. Um, and the process of decolonization had barely begun. Um, but uh, by, uh, by the late 50s, it had begun. Um, and the NAM, uh, the non-line movement, had already begun to stir uh, as uh, representing the vast bulk of the world's population and demanding that they be heard. And um, I think what's interesting for me as an old UN hand is that uh, they clearly had decided that the, uh, the vehicle through which they would be heard was the United Nations. Uh, and their power was one of, of mass, of numbers, of, of votes. So speaking on that um, idea of the UN as a vehicle, during your time as a representative for Canada at the UN, how significant would you say was this uh, non-aligned block in shaping international relations? 
Well, I guess I'll go back to my kind of passing comments on the League and the UN. You will know that uh, the League failed. Uh, its principal architect was Woodrow Wilson, who really created the covenant of the League. And uh, the United States never joined. Um, so you could argue that from its creation in 1919, it was sort of designed to fail. Key countries left. Uh, Russia was expelled uh, for um, invading Finland uh, towards the end. Um, it uh, it never really um, accomplished its main objective, which is the objective of the United Nations, which is the maintenance of international peace and security. Uh, why didn't it? Well, um, I, I really regret to uh, quote Benito Mussolini in support of my argumentation, but I think Mussolini said something to the effect of uh, when sparrows uh, natter, uh, the league can be useful, but when the eagles collide, it is not. Um, and that was the issue. Uh, that remains the issue in the Russian invasion of Ukraine today. It remains the issue. In other words, the United Nations has been designed to do the unimportant, or rather to do that which isn't massively important to the important powers. So the UN does terrific work, I would argue, and changes the lives of people around the world, but it cannot stop a superpower from doing unacceptable things. So was the NAM able to change that? No, not at all. Um, uh, the NAM was able to exert an ever louder voice. And, uh, you know, if you look at the range of resolutions that have followed the Russian invasion of Ukraine last February, you get an idea of what the NAM can and can't do. Um, depending on where you sit, uh, Security Council engagement with respect to the invasion of Ukraine has been an absolute failure. Uh, Russian, the Russians have simply vetoed it. Um, the Chinese, uh, with a couple of others, have abstained. Now, is that a failure or a victory, and for whom? In my view, it's an absolute failure of the international system to deal with an egregious and unacceptable exercise of power. But be that as it may, uh, it failed. So, uh, classically, as has happened in the past, uh, the people who were opposed to the Russian invasion moved the issue to the General Assembly, where the NAM is preponderant, has a massive number of votes. Um, were those votes uh, successful in condemning the invasion? Yes. The resolutions passed with the two-thirds majority required in the General Assembly, but uh, 35 members, uh, almost exclusively from the NAM, um, disagreed and abstained. Um, five others uh, voted no. Um, so, you know, victory for whom? Was it an overwhelming victory for right and justice? No. I was wondering, just moving on uh, sort of into the post-Cold War era. So the NAM was conceived to a great extent in opposition to the bipolarism of the Cold War. So you had, in the terminology of the day, the first world, which was the capitalist West, the second world, which was the Marxist world, uh, and then it was conceived as the third world, uh, sort of the third way away from this bipolarism. When the Cold War ends uh, in the early 90s, did you observe while working at the United Nations that uh, this sort of undermined the purpose of non-aligned movement? Well, not everyone is going to agree with you, Gray, that the, that the uh, Cold War has ended. If you look at headlines uh, across the West, 
and the East today, it looks to me pretty much like the Cold War is alive and well. In fact, if you look at those UN votes I was just talking about, I think that makes the case even more strongly that the Third World, that the Cold War is alive and well. That is, uh, both sides, East and West, went to extraordinary efforts to uh, court understanding and, of course, the votes of the non-aligned in the face of these Ukraine resolutions. Uh, Foreign ministers of Russia and Ukraine uh, I served in the Security Council with Sergei Lavrov, the current foreign minister of Russia, um, and he was traveling through uh, Africa, as was the foreign minister of Ukraine, soliciting votes um, for for this uh, confrontation um, in the General Assembly. So, no, I don't really think the third world has ended. I don't think we're really in a multipolar world, uh, other than the fact that uh, China is a major power. Uh, has been abstaining in those votes and others, though it isn't really a bipolar world, it might be a tripolar world or 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 somewhat more than that. But um, we're not yet in a world in which I would say uh, that the non-aligned are effectively a pole. In 1955, the Bandung Conference, the leaders of this non-aligned movement are India, Indonesia, Yugoslavia, Egypt, and Ghana. Mm. Would you consider these to be the leaders of the developing world today? And if no. not, well, how has the power balance shifted? Well, Indonesia is a massive Asian power, uh, the largest uh, Muslim country in the world. But its its power, if you will, is so is so vastly eclipsed by China uh, in the same region. Um, uh, a situation which certainly was not the case at Bandung. Um, Africa, the dominant powers in Africa today are uh, Nigeria and South Africa, um, neither of which you mentioned uh, as a leader at Bandung. So, no, I I don't think they're exactly the same. India's voice, if anything, is uh, stronger today, Um, but then so is China's. Um, uh, Mexico's voice is stronger uh, than it was. Um, So... Uh, no, all the, the, those powers shift, and, and they shift as between political and economic, that's between the NAM and the G77, but the dominant powers in the world are still the dominant powers in the world. So in the uh, article that this podcast is going to be associated with, the author is Wilson Simons, is looking specifically at how uh, the Bandung generation served as an anti-colonial bloc. Uh, I know that you spent a lot of time while working on development issues, correct me if I'm wrong in Africa. During these experiences, was the legacy of colonialism or the presence of neocolonialism easily observable? Uh, And if so, in what ways? Yes, uh, all too observable. By that, I mean, as the African leaders I just mentioned, the authors of the new Partnership for Africa's Development, NAPAD, as they articulated very clearly in 2001, and please, forgive what will be a kind of gross oversimplification, but in quite a long and very well-focused document, uh, they effectively said, we've got to get over it. By that, I mean nearly 50 years after the end of colonialism in most of Africa, it wasn't enough for Africans to keep carping over how nasty and terrible colonialism was. It was time for them to get past it and and start taking responsibility for their own achievements and failures. 
uh, and to start, obviously, building on success. And it wouldn't help Africa a great deal to be endlessly meandering through uh, what happened in the 50s and 60s, and in a couple of cases, uh, um, the early 70s. Uh, lots had happened since. Uh, Africa had changed massively since, um, from an e economic point of view, from a population point of view. And, and they had to get on with fixing the ills uh, that they were encountering that um, were uh, uh, little to do with colonialism. All that said, the colonial background, and of course, uh, I mean, the great unsaid in all this, and I'm talking particularly about Africa, uh, uh, slavery before colonialism. And if, you, if you will, certainly in my mind, they are very closely related. It's not an easy thing to get beyond something like slavery. But it is vital to Africa's future that they look forward. Pierre Trudeau said, uh, we can only be just in our own time. And uh, I think increasingly the leaders of Africa understand that. Um, what is past has to be remembered. It should be properly chronicled. But um, look forward. Uh, and the issues that are plaguing Africa today are not all the cause of colonialism or the result. Moving into the present day, uh, throughout the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a lot of uh, traditional members of the non-aligned movement have taken ambiguous positions on the conflict. Um, but in a conflict where the aggressor is so clear, uh, ambiguity in many ways is tacit support. Uh, for example, we saw Chinese President Xi Jinping and Putin declare that their partnership had no limits right before the invasion. We also saw, as you mentioned, India refuse to condemn the invasion at the UN. Similar policies of neutrality have been followed by Brazil, Indonesia, uh, various sub-Saharan African countries. What do you make of this? Do you think that this is um, more a surface level economic decision? For example, a lot of countries like India are dependent on Russia for weapons and they don't want to upset them. Or do you think that this is a deeper sort of expression of autonomy from uh, the Western world, which would obviously like to see uh, a more aggressive stance on Russia? Yes, to your final point. <laughs> um, uh, but, but it's not new. I mean, again, uh, go go back to the origins of the non-aligned movement. The newly independent mass of countries had their own developed their own geostrategic outlook, and uh, to a very significant extent, one of one of the key elements at the UN, which I was arguing earlier, was the chosen. Uh, means of expression uh, uh, for the non-aligned, for the emerging new nations, for the non-aligned movement. Um, and not only did, did groupings like non-aligned and 77 uh, provide mass and authority to such views, they also provided excellent coordination mechanisms. And that is for many, for many of the small, newly uh, free, uh, liberated uh, nations of the world, they had very limited resources, either monetary or human. Uh, and and um, of course, this, these have grown enormously in the intervening period. But still today, um, I mean, most of the countries at the UN are small. Um, uh, Canada doesn't understand enough the extent to which we are actually a major country. Uh, most of the, the UN members are small and don't have the resources to develop complex um, attitudes to um, uh, current and changing international problems. So they coordinate them through uh, organizations 
like the man, a pro and a con to it, and it, it, it tends to be a little over homogenized. Uh, on the other hand, it also tends to be um, more effective. So, um, yeah, if they're including major nations of the world, feel that what's happening in Europe is really a, a kind of a, a, a new version of an old struggle. We, we Canadians uh, don't have any time for Putin's insistence um, uh, that Ukraine is not really a country and is really just part of Russia. Um, uh, but uh, for uh, some distant third world countries, uh, this is just another European squabble or an East-West squabble of which they see no advantage of being part of. They also have to face uh, within their own movement uh, a number of rather nasty um, uh, squabbles among themselves uh, that they uh, are also loath uh, to take sides on in, in the service of NAM uh, um, solidarity. So it's not a new idea that they would be a little bit hands-offish um, uh, in, in some significant part of it. To that point, I even saw earlier today that the G20 is kicking off tomorrow in Bali, Indonesia. Yeah. And yeah. <clears throat> there was a lot of controversy first about whether uh, Vladimir Putin would attend. And we found out just a few days ago that he wouldn't, although he was invited by Indonesia. Uh, we've also seen that this will be the first time that Xi Jinping and Joe Biden meet in person uh, since Joe Biden was elected president. And uh, Chinese-American relations have obviously soured a lot, especially with regard to Taiwan. Countries like Indonesia... Uh, which have been traditionally more allied with the United States, but have seen increasing economic integration with China in the last couple of decades, are going to have trouble balancing the relationship with seemingly two major powers that are diverging more and more. Yeah. Uh, do you think they're going to be able to maintain neutrality in a non-aligned, in a sort of revitalization of the non-aligned movement in a bipolar world, or do you think eventually they're going to have to take sides? I think it'll vary enormously as to the issue, Greg. Obviously, for countries, I mean, the, the countries that surround China, um, uh, the countries that were um, significant in the Belt and Road Initiative, um, it's going to be a complex dance. Um, look, it's a complex dance, not Ukraine, but a number of issues in the world are pretty complex for Canada. I mean, as when I was on the Security Council, um, obviously, there's enormous pressure um, uh, to. Uh, be on the right side of things, and the right side of things is often defined by Washington. And um, it's a delicate dance for us sometimes when we disagree, to disagree in a way that uh, doesn't uh, damage our uh, vitally primordial relationship with the United States. Well, similarly, for, the, for third world countries, if anything more so, it is very delicate. And I think their, the posture they assume will depend on, on the issue, um, and uh, and you, you will you will see contradictions um, in the stances they take. I'll ask my last question now. Sure. Uh, this is more a personal one. Uh, a lot of people, well, if if this ever does get listeners, I think a lot of the people that choose to listen will be interested in a career in diplomacy or in global affairs more broadly. Uh, um, obviously, the landscape has changed a lot since you entered in '69. But what advice would you give to somebody who's interested in a career path like that? So I had a magnificent career. I loved, I'd like to say I loved every minute. That's not quite true, but I loved most of it. Um, it was, it was especially at the UN. I did, you know, I did nine years at the UN and two postings and it's, it's three-dimensional chess. 
On the other hand, um, you remember what Sartre said, uh, l'enfer, c'est les autres. Well, yeah, um, um, that too is present at the UN. Uh, but but um, I think you'll find, and this sounds very self-serving, and I'm sorry if it does, but uh, in the business of diplomacy, you find a whole bunch of really bright people. And it's exciting, challenging uh, to interact with those people and to make your case as they make their case on all kinds of constantly changing and complex issues. Uh, uh, yeah, Canada, Canada's Department of External Affairs, Foreign Affairs, Global Affairs, DFAD has changed its name many times, um, uh, has gone through vitally uh, wrenching changes, and I hope it goes through some more. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's, it's a fun, challenging, exciting, rewarding career, and I hope your listeners would give it careful consideration. Um, also, the career of public service. Um, um, I spent a good part of my career kind of in and around uh, the international affairs, international security uh, ambit, uh, but uh, in other departments and uh, doing other things. And that, too, was very rewarding. And in, in, in the federal public service, you can come and go into international affairs and into, uh, into other areas of similar uh, and equally important interests. So. Hell yes, it's a it's a it's a great career, and I can think of very. There might be few that are more economic. There may be a number that are more economically rewarding, but very few that are as intellectually rewarding. All right, thank you so much for coming on. Real pleasure, Ray. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Make sure to check out Flux Volume Thirteen, Issue One, when it is published uh, in the beginning of January.